May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Here we are at the start of the Advent season, and so too at the start of a new liturgical year. So, I want everyone to turn to your neighbor and tell them, Happy New Year. (laughs) Advent is a season of expectation and preparation for Christmas. The coming of Jesus Christ as a babe in the manger. It is a festive time when we buy and pick up Christmas trees and wreaths from the church to decorate our homes. It is a busy time as students march towards the semester's end. And so if you are like me, the gospel reading for this first Advent Sunday feels disjointed and strange. It is strange. Filled with imagery, one will be taken and one will be left, that we may find entertaining and thriller shows, like my personal favorite, Stranger Things, but that we find disturbing in a religious context, and rightfully so, since we know too well the harm of diversive and exclusionary language. Those of us who have cycled through the church calendar for years and years may know, at least in theory, that the point of today is to remind us that Advent is not only about Jesus coming soon at Christmas, but also about Jesus coming again in glory to judge the living and the dead, as we say in the Apostles' Creed. It is about the second coming of Christ, But that phrase alone may conjure up more of the same uncomfortable feelings. Our temptation, then, is to ignore the theme of this first Sunday of the new year, to skip on over it and conclude it lacks real relevance for our lives. But the early Christians heard good news in this passage and others like it. And so it is worth asking if we might as well. This week's reading and other passages in Matthew 24 and 25 are called crisis parables and are part of a broader genre known as apocalyptic literature. It's a genre also found in the book of Daniel and Zephaniah and the Old Testament and Revelation and in Paul's letters to the churches. Apocalypse in Greek means revelation or the unveiling of truth And in the Bible, the truth always includes crisis and hope. In our reading today, Jesus is announcing a coming crisis to a people who, like us, already know that they are living in crisis, like the crisis of climate change, the crisis of violent transphobia and homophobia, like the mental health crisis among youth resulting from the pandemic, like the various crises in our own personal lives. The Bible speaks of the coming of the Son of Man itself as a kind of crisis, a turning point. For the kingdom of God that Jesus brings is in a head-on confrontation with the powers of darkness in our world. 
When Jesus comes, he disrupts reality as we know it because his appearance marks the advent of a new world. In the Bible, the coming of the Son of Man is always about the radical transformation of this world. In Revelation, Jesus brings the new heaven and the new earth. And in the Gospels, Jesus inaugurates and embodies God's kingdom on earth. The appeal of apocalyptic literature, what made it good news for the early church, is that it honestly names the crisis, that things are not okay in our social world, and it opens our imagination up to the possibility of something different, something new. We've been trained by pop culture to think of apocalypse in terms of crisis only, like the zombie apocalypse. Nothing sounds good about a zombie apocalypse. But the Bible invites us to be a people who can simultaneously hold together crisis and hope. Hoping for something different is only possible if we can honestly name and face everything that's wrong with our lives. Apocalyptic times call for an apocalyptic faith, a faith that can hold at once a sense of crisis and expectant hope. Where is the hope in today's reading, we might ask? Whether in the book of Revelation or in Matthew's Gospel, the -the over-the-top, even monstrous imagery placed in the mouth of Jesus is an attempt of the early church writers to grapple with what for us is incomprehensible, the fullness of God bursting into the world to set things right once and for all. When we affirm the mystery of our faith, that Christ will come again, we point to the promises of God to do just that. We turn in expectant hope to the promise that God's kingdom will come on earth as it is in heaven, that every rule and authority and power that serves sin and death will at last be abolished, that we will be set free from those powers once and for all through God's mercy and love. This is the heart of the Advent message. God will come and intervene in this old world full of disappointment, conflict, disease, and pain. Perhaps the creators of the lectionary were on to something by turning our attention on this first Sunday of the new year to God coming again. Advent asks us to hold in view the first and second coming of Jesus. In other words, it asks us to hold in view the whole story from beginning to end, the gospel narrative that takes a year to walk through, week by week, scene by scene, season by season. But before we even get to the scenes depicting Jesus' historical life, his incarnation at Christmas, the manifestation to the Gentiles at Epiphany, his ministry and preaching in the season after Epiphany, his path to crucifixion during Lent, his passion and death during Holy Week, his resurrection from the dead at Easter, his return to the Father, and the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost, before we get to all that, 
the first Sunday of the new year orients us to what the story is all about, the promised future of God's reign. During the season of Advent, we hear the promise that the conflict we experience now between the life-giving power of God and the death-dealing powers of evil and sin will one day be resolved, and God will be victorious. The Advent promise is that even in the midst of crisis, we may experience a glimpse, a taste of that victory now. Advent people know that God has come, that God will come again, and in between that God keeps on coming. God breaks into our personal and collective lives again and again and again. Advent is not for the faint of heart. It calls us to become a people who can hold together the crisis of the present moment and hope for a promised future. And Advent asks us to practice this dual posture, not only for a season, but for the entirety of our lives. For our whole life is a kind of Advent, as we live in the tension of crisis and hope. How, then, do we become Advent people who live well in this tension? Well, here's a first practical takeaway from this strange apocalyptic text. Right now, at the beginning of our commercial season of Christmas, where everything is supposed to be singularly merry and bright, we are given permission to be honest about the crises in our personal and collective lives. It's a relief, isn't it? Good news, actually, to know that we don't have to enter the season faking it with one another or in denial about the real difficulties we face. Even more, we can help one another stay awake to the hard realities and not sleep. Instead of numbing ourselves or escaping in denial, we can be present to the things in our lives that scare us, that make us anxious, that hurt us. Because, as Paul says to the Romans, salvation is near. In turn, we can be present to one another, to a neighbor's suffering or a stranger's need that may equally scare us. Because the same promise applies. The day of the Lord is near. The hard part about Advent is that none of this is in our control. We do not know on what day our Lord is coming. We do not know when God will break into the situations that need divine intervention. At first, the language of Matthew's gospel might seem like a threat. Be ready. The Son of Man is coming at an unexpected hour. We do not know the day that God will come. But don't these words actually give voice to our lament? We do not know when the crises in our lives will be resolved or when the burden will lessen. We do not know what healing will look like or what form new life will take. In the midst of this uncertainty, we are called to stay awake, 
to keep the oil and our lamps burning in the darkest of nights, to be eagerly on the lookout, expectantly awaiting the coming of God and the dawn of a new day. We are called to wait for it, to beg for it. No, Advent is not for the faint of heart. It takes courage to stay awake in the dark. And as anyone who has tried to stay awake through the night knows, perhaps studying for an exam or finishing up a project, it is easier when we are in the company of others. We need one another, don't we, to say to us, stay awake, I'll stay awake with you. I'll stay awake to your pain or sorrow, to your anxieties about our collective future. I'll stay awake and wait with you for the arrival of God. For into the darkness of your medical diagnosis, into the crisis of pandemic, God will come. Into the crisis of relationship broken or lost, into unspeakable grief, God will come. Into our humiliations and failures, God will come. Into the crisis of unmet need, into the darkness of violence and social conflict, God will come. Stay awake, our God will come. The Advent practice of staying awake has an added potential of forming us into people who can be surprised, who know that the future is open and that the way things are is not the way they have to be. Nothing is inevitable. Anything is possible. Because we wait but don't know the time, we can be surprised in joy and delight when God's new thing finally comes. Maybe, if we're lucky, we can even have the trust of a child who knows that after a long, dark night, Christmas morning arrives. Amen.